0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash Conspirituality and use code Conspirituality to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order.
1: This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation. So you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show, in preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist, and the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy, but he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language there isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking, and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. To podcasts. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests. There's people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker. To portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes like the one with Saturday Night Live's Cecily Strong playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mansukas. You may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: spirituality i'm derek barris
2: i'm matthew remsky i'm julian walker you
0: can stay up to date with us on all of our social media handles which is instagram youtube facebook Uh, I have a TikTok that I'm throwing some stuff on. We'll see how that goes. Matthew just started a parlor account. You can find him there at True Patriot. Uh, And of course, we're on Patreon at patreon.com conspirituality, where for $5 a month, you can help support us as well as get access to our Monday bonus episodes.
1: Conspirituality74, Elena Brower could stop selling doTERRA. What happens when MLM sales and neoliberal life coaching collide with a yoga charisma that oozes with pseudo feminism? Where do we even begin? Exploitation, heartbreak, toxic mimicries of therapy, mentorship, political awareness, and community. In this investigative report, Matthew digs into the background of a recent article posted to Medium called Open Letter to Elena Brower. He interviews the author, Tatum Fiersted, who Brower mentored from 2014 to 2016, and Liz Fullen, who worked as Brower's unpaid yoga class assistant for approximately three years. He'll also play excerpts from a legally recorded Zoom call in which Brower gives non-consensual coaching to a stranger. Friend of the pod, Dr. Natalia Petrozella, joins the story to recount her personal brush with the Handel coaching method. Brower is a Handel expert coach and has merged the method with her yoga training to produce peak cognitive dissonant messaging. You're fabulous, but you're fucked. You're already perfect and you know what's right for you, but you have a lot of work to do and I can show you how to do it. Other themes include performative therapy abuse the perils of unlicensed therapy, and how the power pyramids that hide in plain sight may be more vulnerable than we know, especially when we begin to talk about them clearly.
2: The provocation for this episode is an article that was posted to Medium on September 23rd. It's called Open Letter to Elena Brower, and it carries the subtitle, Content Warning, Spiritual and Emotional Abuse. So the articles in the show notes, and though I'll be summarizing the main points, I encourage you to read it for full context. Now, the open letter was written by a woman named Tatum Feerstead. Tatum works as a licensed acupuncturist in Minnesota, and she grew up in a working-class Minneapolis family that attended a fundamentalist Baptist church. She describes herself as a spiritual abuse survivor. From 2012 to 2018, she worked as a public yoga teacher and for a few years within that time was mentored by Elena Brower, a yoga celebrity and now presidential diamond seller, now double category, I'll explain what that means in the report, for the doTERRA multi-level marketing essential oils company. For listeners who don't know Elena Brower. You'll get to know a little about her in this report, but for now, perhaps you'll know the phrase from musical theater, uh, triple threat. This would be the stage star who can sing, dance, and act. Brower is a women's wellness triple threat, an extremely charismatic yoga teacher with ravishing fashion and design chops and also killer business instincts. Tatum's open letter describes years of hard to categorize stuff in her relationship with Brower. She doesn't describe anything illegal, although when we're talking about uncontracted labor and multi-level marketing schemes, as we will be, we can be in a gray zone. Mainly, Tatum paints the picture of a time in her life in which she was vulnerable to the economic and psychological power of a women's leader who blended yoga and life coaching into her sprouting essential oil downline. So this is a story of blurred and manipulated boundaries between work, something that looks like therapy but isn't, and something that at times looked like friendship except that they were never on equal footing. It's also a story of time and energy and creativity lost or siphoned away by a cruel gig work economy so that it can be hoarded by those at the top. Reading through it and then researching this episode made me think of all of the millennial women I have known who have gotten sidetracked by the facade of respectability in the yoga and wellness world a facade that concealed a rat race of low-paid and high-performance work. Some of them spent years trying to build media brands and retail networks, often for other people, when they might have preferred to be in school or be working their way into a more stable profession. Increasingly, it's also looking like a story about a bubble that is bursting, economically and morally. I've organized this report into five chapters with clips from three on-record interviews and data from several sources on background. I'll kick things off with a prologue in which I tell about my personal brush with what I'm going to call the Brower effect. I've never met Brower in person, but she did help to upend a part of my working life here in Toronto. So the first chapter is you used me as a prop. This is a line straight out of Tatum's essay. Uh, and in it, I'll look at Fierstead's description of a moment in her relationship with Brower that encapsulates something that I'll call performative therapy abuse, something that has a long history in the yoga world. The second chapter is called The Oils Coach. And this is the story of how Brower braided life coaching as taught by an outfit called the Handel Group into her rise as a doTERRA overlord. The third chapter is called Zoom Call from Hell, and in this I analyze a legally recorded Zoom call in which Brower coaches someone, but without consent. The fourth chapter is called Enthrallment is Not Money, and it tracks the ups and downs of Brower's interactions with Liz Fullen, who describes working as Brower's unpaid yoga assistant for years. Uh, Now, just a note here, a yoga assistant is not a personal assistant, but a kind of in-class facilitator for a top-tier yoga teacher, uh, someone who offers postural help, adjustments, and sometimes acts as flight attendant, bringing students blankets and pillows. And the fifth chapter is called Sorry, Not Sorry, where we hear about how Brower has responded to Tatum's letter, and we hear from Tatum herself on what she feels it all means. Now, in addition to hearing from Tatum and Liz, we'll also hear from historian of U.S. fitness and wellness culture, Professor Natalia Petrozella, who spoke with me about her experience with and analysis of the Handel Life Coaching Method, which casts a long shadow over this story. Natalia was an early guest on our podcast way back on episode four, uh, where she helped us wade through issues of whiteness in the wellness world. So... We'll link to that in the show notes. And we're going to roll these five chapters straight through and then check back in afterwards for final thoughts. And just a note off the top, I want to be clear that there isn't a single data point in this reporting that has not been corroborated and fact-checked. There will be editorial comments, but they will be clearly identified... I reached out to Elena Brouwer by email for comment on a detailed list of questions about what my sources said, and she did not respond. She did, however, block our accounts on Instagram. Prologue, The Brower Effect From 2012 to 2017, I worked as a yoga teacher and trainer at a swanky downtown Toronto yoga studio. It was a posh neighborhood, there was high-end retail space on the first floor, a full schedule of interesting and pricey classes in the two upstairs studios, and the warm and altruistic owners hosted a reputable teacher training program. At some point in early 2016, or perhaps before, the owners of this studio met Elena Brower, a New York yoga celebrity with an international following. Brower had also been building a multi-level marketing fiefdom on the doTERRA essential oils platform since 2013. Now, I don't know where or how that first meeting happened, Perhaps the owners traveled to a yoga conference or to Brower's studio in Soho, because for a while it was a thing for ambitious Canadian yoga studio owners to travel to New York, Los Angeles, or San Francisco on business reconnaissance to see how the big hitters in the industry were swinging. However they met, before long, the studio owners had been sucked into Brower's doTERRA sales funnel— And Brower herself came to the studio that April for a series of workshops, one of which was focused on recruiting yet more doTERRA customers and sellers. Not long after that, I arrived for work one afternoon to see that a large chunk of the retail space had been converted to display oils and stacks of Brower's books and journals. And when I went to the bathroom downstairs, I noticed that some of the treatment rooms were shuttered. There had been several with resident massage therapists and other body workers. I opened one door to find the treatment room converted into storage for doTERRA overstock. By that summer, the owners seemed to be talking and posting about essential oils all the time. Messages recruiting staff members for adventures into oil land constituted a large chunk of the internal communications. The language was vague, but urgent. Everyone had to find their life purpose. Everyone had to be empowered with better household cleaning choices. Everyone needed inner transformation and financial freedom. Many of the younger staffers were enlisted, and prospective students and training programs were invited to doTERRA soirees. I found it odd that everyone was trying to sell little bottles of oil to each other. I couldn't figure out how it was working. Of course, it wasn't. I didn't know much about MLMs at that point, but I think that even if I had, I would never have guessed that a robust business like this could be ensnared in something so corrupt. But that's one of the things these companies do so well. The image management is so top notch that it can goad even a well-organized and successful downtown yoga studio into becoming a pump-and-dump essential oil clearinghouse. But the other thing I had no real idea of at that time was what it might have felt like on the inside of a brower type machine where yoga, life coaching, and MLM sales Could lead to extremely toxic dynamics, hidden by a pseudo feminism that pretends to uplift women while actually spiritualizing the worst aspects of predatory capitalism. Chapter One You Used Me as a Prop. One view on what the Brower effect felt like hit medium on September 23rd when Tatum Fiersted posted an open letter to Elena Brower. The subtitle gives a content warning for spiritual and emotional abuse. There are a lot of passages that stand out in this piece, and here's a good one to start with. I interviewed Tatum for this episode, and we'll hear clips of that at the end, But I also asked her to read the following into her phone to kick us off.
3: Do you remember when I had an anxiety attack during the Art of Attention teacher training in 2014? I was in the back of the room trying to calm myself down quietly, and you saw that my attention wasn't on you. So you yelled in a stern voice for me to come to the front of the room. I said, no, I don't want to. And you said, come here right now. I don't know what I thought you would do if I didn't listen to you, but I sat next to you and you told me to turn my head to the left and breathe. I obeyed. You gently put your hand on my back, which is a confusing thing to do to someone after yelling at them when they are already very dysregulated. You continued to lecture as I sat there in front of 30 plus women and disassociated. No one spoke up for me. Everyone seemed to revel in awe at your perceived magic because they all thought you calmed me down, not knowing that I had just unhinged myself from reality in order to keep myself safe. You used me as a prop. You didn't ask me what I needed. You assumed to know, and you were wrong. But it didn't matter because you were perceived in a way you wanted to be, and that seems to be more important to you than the harm you caused.
2: Okay, so backing up for a bit... The Art of Attention training was a 100-hour yoga training program that Brouwer ran only once in her Soho studio from 2013 to 2014. Now, Brouwer's studio was called Vera Yoga, and she opened it in 2002, and it remained open until the end of that same training in 2014. Art of Attention was the name of Brower's best-selling book at the time, and I'll describe that in chapter four, because the book was the first personal point of connection between Brower and Liz Fullen, who would eventually become Brower's uncontracted assistant. The book was essentially a print version of five online classes she recorded for the online platform called Yoga Glow, which helped propel her global visibility. Because this is also a story about very smart cross platform branding. I'm starting with Tatum's description of that moment from 2014 because it really encapsulates the whole vibe of this story, which is about a lot more than Brower. Here's the workflow of that scene a charismatic leader is commanding attention, they sense that someone is vulnerable. There is an opportunity to use that person as an example of the mystical power of their content. They perform their therapeutic magic on the vulnerable person while keeping the spotlight focused on themselves. There's a bullying quality to the quote-unquote therapy. They have no idea whether they have helped in the way it is claimed. They never check in or follow up. The performance of Helping isn't about helping. It's about the charismatic's image management. And in this case, it plays out under the pseudo-feminist cover of Women Empowering Women. Now, just a brief digression here. Last week, I posted this workflow to our Instagram feed through a series of tweets. I didn't give any episode context the comment section blew up with verification because it turns out that this performative therapy abuse, as I suspected, is pretty common in the self-help and wellness world. Commenters referenced Tony Robbins, EST, later the Landmark Forum, Byron Katie, Teal Swan, Scientology, You know, we just did a whole episode on John of God, who literally assaulted people publicly under the guise of spiritual healing. But commenters also mentioned some cultural forms I'm not familiar with, but make a lot of sense. Somebody was talking about fundamentalist Christian altar calls, where vulnerable people are hauled up to the altar to be healed. Or this one was interesting— people in pastoral care training where this same kind of performative therapy abuse takes place. So what Tatum describes is a definite thing, and I hope that over time we all come to identify it more clearly. And wearing my cult research hat for a moment, I can also say that the basic confessional power structure in which the group member has their vulnerabilities highlighted is a classic power grab you get the member to bear themselves publicly so that they rely on the leader's grace but also on the group's pity in order to eke out some feeling of acceptance and in the most extreme cases the confessional posture becomes actual confessional material that the leader then uses against the member as in Keith Raniere keeping and collecting collateral on his members okay lawyers I am not stating or implying in any way that Brower is a cult leader. Rather, as I often do on this podcast, I'm suggesting that cult research has broad applications. So, performative therapy abuse is a thing. I'm most familiar with it in the yoga world, which is Brower's context. Choosing a vulnerable mark is totally standard. I've been in classes in the Baron Baptiste method where it's happened, where the teacher has stood over a vulnerable student who just wants to hide and shouts, the only way out is through, meaning, you know, suck it up, buttercup, or, you know, you have to get through your difficulties and we're going to watch you do it. I've been personally made an example of in Iyengar classes with everyone gathering around to watch me overcome some defect in my posture under the guidance of the teacher and that's in Brower's yoga zone, but it's also in her quote-unquote lineage. Because if we back up two generations of celebrity yoga teachers in her upline, we'll see that this scene is a kind of psychosocial set piece that just repeats over and over again. And the history behind it is that Brower would not have been a prominent yoga teacher if it hadn't been for her central role in a yoga school called Anusara, run by a guy named John Friend. And John Friend, for his part, would not have been anyone as a yoga teacher if he hadn't studied with, but also claimed authority from BKS Iyengar, who was one of the patriarch evangelists of the modern postural yoga movement. Now, I've done a lot of coverage on Iyengar previously on this podcast. There's a bonus episode that's actually free to the public. It's called Yoga Teachers Are Not Doctors and Doctors Are Not Priests. So that will be uh, linked to in the notes for you. But the short story is that Mr. Iyengar was an outrageously charismatic figure with zero formal education who invented an entire approach to physical culture based upon postural correction often meted out through physical assaults disguised as quote-unquote adjustments that he, and more importantly his students, associated with physical and even spiritual healing. Now to give you a sense of not only how this performative therapy abuse works, but how normalized it is in the yoga world, I've got a clip here from Iyengar's prodigal son-slash-protege, Manuso Manos. He's describing the first time he watched Iyengar teach in Berkeley, California, in the early 1970s. This clip comes from 2016, which is about two years after Iyengar died at the age of 96, and the event is a memorial-slash-retrospective. Content warning physical assault described as healing.
4: I was unable to get into his workshop when he was teaching here in Berkeley and and they gave me an observer spot so I could see which in some ways I felt I was cheated because I couldn't get in. Other ways I had a bird's eye view that almost no one else got so I could sit behind him on the stage and look out at what he was looking at. First pose, Tadasana, people standing there. Second pose, good and then jump your feet apart. There's a woman, almost dead center, maybe 10 feet in front of him. She got one arm down and one arm up, just like this. He said, I told you all, bring your arms out to the side. She says, a uh, frozen shoulder. He comes down off the stage, goes down, grabs her, holds one hand on her shoulder, grabs her hand, goes like this, you hear this (laughs) blood-curdling scream, her knees start to go out, he grabs her by her ribs, puts her up like this, he says, now, keep your arm there. Every pose, he comes down off the stage and adjusts this woman, every time, it's a little bit less of a scream, by the end of the class, she's got her arms straight up in the air like this. I watched him cure a frozen shoulder that had been there for more than two years in a few hours, and the way that he, it wasn't charisma because that's the easy word that we spit at each other. Mm-hmm. But his command of the subject, his belief in the subject, his, his ability to inspire others into this was breathtaking yeah. and beyond
2: belief. Okay. The first thing we should note about Manuso Manos, this guy telling this shaggy dog miracle story, is that he's a serial sex abuser. His own professional guild has tossed him out after an independent investigation found that he sexually abused students for years. He's never been charged. But this was known about since the early 1990s. Now, is this relevant? What does Manos' personal behavior have to do with this story? A lot, actually, because... Even if you were partial to believing what a sex abuser had to say about his hero, it might give you pause or... When you find out that Manos owed his entire career to Iyengar, and not just because he was a zealous student who imitated his master's dominance, but because Iyengar forgave him for committing sexual abuse back in the 1990s and gave him his job and status back when he had been turfed out of the San Francisco Iyengar Center. So in life, but also in death, Manos absolutely needs Ayengar to be the genius who validated him, because it was only Ayengar who stood between him and utter disgrace. It's relevant because miracle stories in the yoga and wellness worlds often cast a shadow of corruption. Anyway, the nuts and bolts of this story about the woman with the frozen shoulder are that... Ayengar sees her condition but doesn't take a history or know anything about her. He instinctually assumes he can fix it. He forcibly cranks her injured joint loose as she screams. He does it over and over again, and no one stops him or questions him. And Manos claims that her ability to raise her arms by the end of the grueling class is a cure, but he doesn't describe following up with her to see, for instance, whether her shoulder remained mobile later. The miracle is just taken as given by the audience. And in the retelling of the story, on a stage in San Francisco, people titter with excitement. And I believe this is because they know they're hearing about something transgressive or even abusive, but it's being framed for them as liberating and healing. The laughter relieves the cognitive dissonance. Finally, the success of an incident like this depends upon the subject never speaking up, plus the group creating an airtight rationalization for why the abuse is okay. All right, moving on to the next generation. John Friend, a Texas-based financial analyst who studied with Iyengar in the early 1990s, Friend is an enormous topic, and a lot of ink has been spilled on him, and so you'll have links. What I'll stick to for now is relaying what I gathered from the anecdotes of friends and colleagues who studied with Friend and tried to climb his corporate yoga ladder. John Friend was famous for teaching hundreds of people at a time, sometimes as many as 600 people would gather at events that lasted for days. Now, Iyengar himself was the original master of this kind of convention hall-sized class, but Friend took it more in a rah-rah direction into what we might call arena yoga, He created a party atmosphere, he used a lot of spiritually aspirational language, and he was endlessly encouraging, or at least seemed to be. And I say seemed to be because as I heard the stories, there was always an element of coercion involved that echoed the way in which Iyengar manipulated vulnerable people, but also predicted the way that Brower used Tatum, quote, as a prop, unquote, as she wrote. Now, in these large-scale events, often residential in some fabulous retreat locale where it's hard to raise objections and even harder to leave, and you've spent a ton of money, and so the sunken costs are really high, Friend would commonly single out someone who is in a vulnerable state, someone with an injury, somebody in the midst of a divorce, somebody feeling nauseous from chemotherapy, and he'd ask them to come up to the dais and be the model for some kind of difficult posture so that they could embody what he called their optimal blueprint, even under stress. And everyone could tell that the person was reluctant, but perversely, this was like blood in the water. They would cheer their encouragement, and it was really hard for the person to decline or to to show their reluctance. So there they would be, heartsick or on the verge of vomiting, arching up into some crazy backbend while everyone clapped and hooted about their bravery, which was really compliance. So, the vulnerable person was being used to prove the effectiveness of the content, and it really didn't matter what they felt about it, so long as they could will themselves to do something difficult for the benefit of the teacher and the group. So, Friend was lauded for his brilliance, and people would come back from those events to Toronto, calling him a miracle worker, and his group touted itself as offering the most intelligent and spiritually informed yoga on the market. Now, performative therapy abuse is complicated because sometimes the subject will later go on to say that the confrontation did good things for them. But if you scratch the surface of those stories, you'll often find that they're told by people invested in the miraculous powers of the charismatic in question, people who went on to benefit from being a top student or whatever. In fact, in that same public event with Manuso Mano's That I just played the clip from another senior Iyengar teacher, Patricia Walden, who is like globally adored within the yoga world, gives her own tribute to the old man, describing how Iyengar used to kick her in the spine while she was in headstand for God knows what reason. And she glows as she describes this as a sublime learning experience. Point being, Brouwer is not the innovator of performative therapy abuse, which manages to both stigmatize and co-opt vulnerability at the same time. But in Brouwer's take, we see a more formal, organized, and corporatized direction as it mixes with something a little bit more bourgeois. Because the program that Tatum Fiersted is describing wasn't just a yoga training— This was also a proving ground for something fairly new that Brower was involved in, life coaching. And that coaching, via an organization called the Handel Group, in some ways laundered these old showman bully techniques and gave them a, quote, female lifestyle empowerment brand, unquote, pastel-ishness. I'm borrowing a phrase now from the brilliant feminist critic Kelly Deals. That laundering served an important function as Broward differentiated herself from John Friend's Anusara. Now, why did she distance herself? Because in 2012, Friend torched his company by acting like a parasitic slumlord He started claiming IP rights over whatever his top students produced and were trying to monetize, while putting himself at the center of a pot-soaked sex coven. He was never accused of assault or anything illegal, but his feel good rather ratter-than-thou brand would never recover. He has tried to make a few comebacks, just the other day, as an anti-vax advocate on Facebook. So go figure. In 2012, that spring of Anusara discontent, Brower published a kind of mea culpa to Huffington Post about her erstwhile tenure in Friend's scam. It's a meandering article that says a lot of things. She knew what Friend was up to, but she was all for forgiveness now, The yoga he taught was awesome, but she was going to cut out on her own. All around, I think it was a solid rebranding effort cloaked in the language of new adventures and self-empowerment. By the year after that, with the Anusara training pyramid collapsed, Brower launched her own 100 hours of training, and predictably, it was as ambitious as Friends'. The 3300 US dollar price was roughly the same price as other 200-hour programs, so programs that were twice as long. And according to the welcome letter Brower sent out in July of 2013, the curriculum featured fabulous guest teachers and rich promises. Quote, Together, we'll study language, listening, philosophy, structure, anatomy for structural integrity, adjustments, kundalini yoga, hatha yoga, vinyasa yoga, yin yoga, pranayama, and the chakra system, the heart of our practices. We'll learn subtle body awarenesses and self-healing bioenergetics. We'll examine our own possibilities via core Handel method coaching concepts put a pin in that, and we'll explore restoratives. Using day-to-day mind-sight practices, we will simplify our emotional experience, and together we'll refine our teaching voices and practice regular meditation. We'll spend time learning and teaching. We'll be making two ongoing art projects, and we'll take away an abundance of inspiration with which to work for years to come. So, Tatum Fiersted and Liz Fullen have another view of that abundance of inspiration. Chapter 2. The Oils Coach What Brouwer did not include in the program copy was that the art of attention training would also be soaking in essential oils. According to LinkedIn, Brower started from ground zero in the doTERRA MLM in May of 2013, which is just two months before sending out her welcome to the training email. Tatum and other sources recall that Brower encouraged program participants to get into the doTERRA swing, and this makes a lot of sense, because Brower was ideally positioned to join the vanishingly small percentage of MLM salespeople who don't actually lose money. She already had a substantial yoga student network, to whom the wellness pitch of essential oil usage would be right on brand. And... I remember that around the same time, yoga teachers, always younger women, started offering yoga with oils classes or yoga and aromatherapy in which they'd be diffusing and offering oily temple massages to people in corpse pose. So this was a rising wave and Brouwer was just there to surf it. And she was so good at doTERRA sales that she went from ground zero to double presidential diamond level. Okay, so this is a little complicated. Uh, presidential diamond is likely over $1 million in gross sales. But the double part indicates that the company has allowed her to start a second account and downline. And she's accomplished this in only five years or so. So this is really fast. But how fast is it? I spoke with a former gold-level distributor. This would be somebody who had been making a modest $60,000 in gross sales, so but still in the top, top percentiles. Uh, and this is a person who got out of doTERRA when they realized what it actually was. They have asked to remain anonymous for fear of retribution. They characterized the speed of Brouwer's rise as, quote, astonishing, unquote. By November of 2019, Brouwer was on the cover of doTERRA Essential Leadership magazine, and in the feature interview in that in-house publication, she sums up the psychosocial and economic feedback loop that binds her yoga and oil worlds together with ideas about female leadership and bravery. Quote, Belonging to this family of dreamers and achievers elevated my other endeavors, especially my writing and yoga teaching. Now I come to yoga with a fresh mind that's been stretched in different directions by the work of building and sustaining my doTERRA team. Together we've deepened our bonds, listening, learning, and leading together. The expanding bravery I see around me every time we meet as a team is beautiful to witness." All right, so how big is the team? It's impossible to say without seeing the internals, but my former doTERRA insider source says that in order to achieve double diamond, a seller needs a bare minimum of 81 people acting as salespeople on their team. And each of those people will have dozens of customers in their own downline. So the total number of people paying upline to Brower could number in the thousands. So I guess... Expanding bravery is one way to put it. My source also wanted to offer a caution for this part of my reporting, and I'm going to share it here before the details get dirtier, because it sums up so much of the great existing feminist coverage on MLMs already, including from my favorite podcast ever, The Dream, reported by Jane Marie, Anyway, here is what the source wrote by direct message. I think most of the criticism of MLMs doesn't accurately characterize the experience of being involved in one. MLM criticism generally seems to over-caricature the women who sign up for them, and it also under-acknowledges the positive things that women find there in the early stages and ranks. The feeling of community, the shared purpose, the generosity from fellow members. The very real economic and emotional exploitation is very difficult to perceive at first because it's effectively cloaked by so much positivity. The in-group enthusiasm is, as you and I know, based on a delusion, but the quality of that enthusiasm in the average individual is very genuine. If criticism of MLMs doesn't acknowledge this, it will be dismissed by the people it's intended to help. So thank you very much, Anonymous, insider source. Okay, so Brower has the oils going on, but what about this Handel method that she mentioned in the advertising copy that she's starting to incorporate into her yoga teaching? The Handel method was founded in 2004 by sisters Lauren Handel Zander, and Beth Handel Weisenberger. So let's start with the mission statement from the Handel Group website. The Handel Method takes a revolutionary approach to life. Through this innovative coaching process, you will come to know and love yourself, resolve your personal history, and manage your mind. You will develop personal integrity, capital P, capital I, registered trademark and align your heart mind and actions with your dreams you will see and understand yourself from a different perspective and experience your life with newfound compassion humor and honesty okay i gotta pause for an editorial comment on the registered trademark on personal integrity because that's about as red a flag as we could see waving over the brunch patios of soho So whoever these people are, they are willing to presume IP rights over the concept of personal integrity. I mean, I suppose it's good when an outfit shows its ass in its mission statement. It's kind of like, I'm going to show my personal integrity by asserting trademark rights over the idea of personal integrity to make sure that no one else steals it or defines it differently because I guess it's not really personal, but a universal value proposition. It's just mind-bending. Anyway, editorial comment done. We also learned from the website that they offer group and personal coaching, and they're very proud of their corporate sector content. Now, I'm not sure how Brower found Handel, but... I've seen texts between Brower and Tatum Fiersted that show their social circles included Lauren Zander, who is the Handle co-founder. And in one YouTube video, Brower interviews Zander and introduces her as my teacher. And Zander has guested on Brower's podcast twice. Here's a little of what Zander sounds like.
5: First, let me just say this. I'm really glad you're here. I know what it takes to step up to the plate and care. I mean really care about your entire life. It takes courage to be willing to look at what's under your hood. And I certainly don't take my job or your life lightly. So right off the bat, let's be honest. If you're looking for sugary sweetness, niceties, and a good coddle, you've come to the wrong place. I'm not that coach. This is not that program. In fact, Handel Group is not that company. There's nothing diluted here. We're coaching concentrate. We pull no punches. We walk our talk. We fight, champion, and cheer loudly for your dreams, possibly more than you do at this moment. And we're here to teach you to human better. Yes, to human. If FedEx, Google, and Snapchat can be their own verb, Why not human? And given we have no option while we're alive, but to human? I think humaning is something we can always stand to get better at. When human is used as a verb, it puts the onus of responsibility and change and what's possible where it belongs. On us.
2: So that's a little bit of the vibe that is behind the Handel Method coaching that Tatum and Liz Fullen said was central to Brower's yoga programming in that training. Brower is currently listed on the Handel Group site as an expert coach, and a 2018 Handel Group advertising brochure carries a Brower testimonial. Quote, My Handel Group Coaching felt like turning on a light in some of my darkest ways of relating to people closest to me. My family, my teaching, and my relationships have all bloomed with this work. Okay, but what about the content? What is the method itself? Now, they guard their IP pretty closely, but one undated document I've managed to secure is a homework preparation guide to an immersive coaching intensive called Design Your Life Weekend. Now, this homework is to be submitted in advance of the intensive. And Tatum Fiersted and Liz Fullen both said that a version of this process was part of their Art of Attention training with Brouwer. This homework document asks for participants to write up to 7,500 words, which is kind of short novella length, about how they feel about 18 areas of their lives. Career, relationships, sex, body, money, and so on. They're also asked to rate their experiences in each of those categories from 1 to 10. And a key homework prompt is... If the area is not at a 9 or 10, what are the reasons or explanations? Why are you stuck at the current number? What are your negative beliefs? So this is the standard neoliberal idea that the only thing that's standing in the way of your fabulousness is your bad self-perception and your mediocre choices. Is your marriage dying? Is there a lot of family stress? Root out your negative beliefs. Are you systematically oppressed because of race or gender? Design your life better. Friend of the pod, Natalia Petrozella was not impressed with the Handel Group coaching events she went to.
6: The basic idea was that you have 18 areas of life and they were these very finite areas like money, body, you know, things you might imagine. And um, you can be at a zero to a 10 or maybe a one to a 10 of like self-satisfaction in each of these. And that if you really care about living an extraordinary life, you will take an unsparing look at yourself in the mirror in all of these 18 areas and you will like work your way up to 10 is thought to be unsustainable, but to like an eight or a nine in all these areas.
2: So Natalia crossed paths with Handel group because she was training to be an instructor in an aerobic cardio fitness program. And she really loved it. Uh, And this group was working with Handel coaches. Natalia was skeptical, but she agreed to go to the group coaching event because she, as I said, really loved the fitness program, but the events did not go well.
6: My experience of the coaching was that, like, one, it was just so simplistic. Two, it was very bullying. So they had all these words that they would use. Like, I would say, I actually, you know, it's just an example. Like, I actually feel sort of okay with, like, the love part of my life, something like that. I don't even know if that conversation happened. And they'd be like oh, you're just chicken to face what's really going on. Like you were always a chicken, you were a liar, you were a baby, Um, like they had all, it was almost like they were like selling the fact that they weren't gonna wrap up their estimation of you in this like gauzy, feel good, like sugar coated language. And if you were really ready to quote unquote do the work, you too would realize you were truly a chicken and a thief and a liar and all that. which I was just like, what the hell is wrong with you? And then the other thing that really got me too, as someone who, by the way, never studied psychology, but took a couple, like at at any advanced level, but had taken like a few Psych 101 courses, it was this like warmed over Freudian watered down theory that they would hand you like they'd you'd have to fill you have to talk about your parents and what their marriage was like and you know recite traumas that you'd experience and they'd always sort of like link things back to your childhood your parents now I got in I was not a favorite of this group because I asked on these coaching calls like um, have you studied psychology? So can you tell me how, like, how are you a therapist? Like, how how did you arrive at this? Can we discuss theories behind this? And that was never well regarded. That was me being a chicken about, quote unquote, doing the work. I'm like, I call this critical thinking. Thank
2: you. So this theme of being afraid of your own power or being too chicken to do the work, it meshes with the ways in which success is discussed in very magical terms in the doTERRA world. In that Essential Leadership Magazine interview, Brower says, quote, To reach this rank, remember, presidential diamond double thingy with likely one million gross per year, mostly passive income, I had to redesign my schedule to reflect new priorities. This happened slowly because I resisted the concept of my own success. We're afraid to succeed because we would have to sustain it. We're afraid to be great because others around us might feel diminished. I have to keep learning and releasing such misunderstandings. Once I shifted my mindset to overcome my own impending advancement, the team began shifting too. All in all, Natalia went to several Handel events and wrote detailed critiques of the techniques and lack of presenter credentials as email feedback, And those criticisms made their way all the way up the ladder to none other than Lauren Zander, who eventually offered to coach Natalia personally and for free, which sounds like a bit of a flex. Natalia agreed to a few sessions out of interest, but it fizzled. She just didn't need Handel coaching.
6: They just always struck me as arrogant as having no... Um, you know, like credibility for the work that they were doing as grossly um, like cr- just crass salespeople who are constantly pitching themselves. Oh, and also, if you weren't ready to sell yourself or like, you know, act like or, or to admit that you wanted great riches, you were just like this benighted fool right like to be someone who knows what she wants is to be someone who wants to be fabulously wealthy and knows her work so it was like this interesting like kind of like capitalist self-help thing going on while well, they wanted you to sell their services too so I don't know I think it's profoundly screwed up there are probably another a lot of other outfits like this out there and um, I think uh, my experience that I now consider almost a bit like participant observation research <laughs> I guess
2: So, Natalia obviously has some distance from all of this now, but at the time, she also had the fortune of having her critical thinking solidly online, and she was also starting out on what's now a great professional career and standing as a public intellectual. So, when I think of anyone calling Natalia a chicken, it's just totally absurd to me. Like, you just don't know who you're talking to. And, as she said, she was able to make an articulate nuisance of herself on the coaching calls. But the younger and more impressionable gig-working participants in Brower's yoga training weren't on as firm a footing. They hadn't been told that Handel Method would be such a central part of the curriculum, with coaching-type content featured on every full day, Liz Fullen, the woman who worked as Brower's uncontracted yoga assistant for about three years, described her confusion with the Handel material this way.
7: I think it's just kind of strange to ask somebody to just write down all what they think is wrong in their lives as a starting point for upliftment. And so to to and I was young I was I was in a time where I was still trying to figure out who I was as an adult and as as this like my own being and I really wasn't in a frame of mind to like figure out like in those 18 areas what I needed and where I was on a scale of 1 to 10 I was just like okay if I can wake up every morning and and get through the day without having a panic. Like back back then, if I could get through the day without having a panic attack or like shutting down, that was, that was a 10, 10 out of 10 day for me. And then all of a sudden it was like, let's scrutinize every little piece of your life.
2: Liz grew up in a Philadelphia middle-class family. She started studying yoga in 2006 and teaching in 2012. Brower's training presented her with her first experience of Handel coaching.
7: It took away any gratitude or appreciation that I would have had for the present moment. Because it just had you always grasping for something else. And it, that's not who I am at my core. Like, I I found a way to actually be happy with what I have when I have it and where I am when I'm there But Handel is always like, once you get there, you're going to be fine. Pay for this training. And then once you step over here, once you step over this stone, and once you get there, and once you get there, and it's just this loop, this this never-ending loop. I I realized that I was never actually going to manifest what I wanted through that system. Elena was good at highlighting, this is what's wrong, and this is how you're going to fix it. Great authority. But I didn't really need that at that time that was it. It was like, put on paper everything that's wrong with your life and then just get told what to do. And most times it was like, stop smoking pot and eating gluten. And you're like, yeah, but I don't think that's going to fix my familial trauma. And it's like, no, just don't eat pizza anymore.
2: There's a real potential for cognitive dissonance in what we're hearing about this integration of life coaching with yoga. Because when Liz speaks really eloquently about where she's arrived, saying, I found a way to actually be happy with what I have when I have it and where I am when I'm there. It sounds like she's a seasoned yoga practitioner who has learned the lessons of self-acceptance, equanimity, and tranquility. And this is just not coherent with what she describes as the never-ending aspirational seeking of life coaching. And I think this contradiction sums up so much of the worst parts of black and white commodified wellness messaging. That you're fabulous, but you're also fucked. That you're okay, but you're not, because if you were really okay, there wouldn't be anything for me to sell you. You're already perfect, and you know what's right for you, but you still have a lot of work to do, and I can show you how to do it. It's a whole bunch of running to stand still. Chapter 3. Zoom Call from Hell There's a line in Tatum's letter near the end that really stands out. She writes, You did your dirtiest work over the phone or in person, where no one could trace it. And it's true that no one knows what phone calls between Tatum and Brower were like, except for the two of them. But... As fortune would have it, there is an audio recording of a Zoom call between Elena Brower and someone she is coaching, but without consent, which I'll explain in a moment. I have permission from that person to report on it and share clips of Brower's voice. The person wishes to remain anonymous. The recording was made legally from a single-party consent territory. The context is a business meeting. Brower is the handel coach of the business owners. The owners have asked Brower to intervene in a labor dispute between them and the person who recorded the call. I'll call them the employee. They've already set up a time for the meeting, but the employee is informed the day before by email that Brower will be on the call. The employee has never met Brower. It's clear from the opening of the call that Brower will be running the meeting as a coaching session directed at the employee. And she begins by following a script that seems designed to mediate the labor dispute. Now, the dispute involves the employee's stress around work absences due to an illness in their family. So, the call begins with Brower directing a series of stilted confessions of feelings. One boss goes first, and then the employee. But then, there's a strange pivot. At the half-hour mark, Brower says... You
8: and I are very much in the same club. <laughs> um, I'm happy to take this a little farther with you and give you another half-hour of free time. I think that you... Are a lot like me in a lot of ways. And I think that I can help you in a very short period of time with just a few things. You have kids?
2: There are kids, yes. And then Brower asks, bizarrely, if the employee has a quote, mean temper, unquote, with those kids. And it seems she's trying to make some point about how the employee is behaving under stress in their job. Now, this whole kids thing just comes out of nowhere. And it doesn't sound like a good faith question because Brower doesn't actually ask anything about the kids. It's more like she's using the fact that they both have kids to create an identification bond between her and the employee. And as they discuss, they agree that yes, they can both have a temper when it comes to parenting, but Brower suggests that she has overcome it. And this gives her leave to launch into a rapid-fire sermon about what the employee must now do. Now, I'm editing out the employee's voice and a few identifiers for privacy. Again, remember, Brower has never met this employee. This is happening over Zoom. Here's Brower.
8: I am going to walk you through this whole thing. I expected not to like you at all. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to tell you that you're me. Mm-hmm. I'm proud of you. One, you're going to start a regular meditation practice for real don't
2: me around okay i just have to sound of screeching breaks here stop for a moment i have to take an editorial detour because you are me as someone with two psychotherapists in my family i know enough to know that this is totally ignorant and unethical bullshit you are me is the absolute last thing that anyone in any helping profession, not to mention something that can look like therapy, should say to anyone, total transference and counter-transference mess. No, influencer, that person is not you you don't know anything about them. And if you're hoping to create a bond with them by using this language of communion, this is highly unethical because you are two separate people with unique histories and needs and, most importantly, unequal power in this situation where this is an employee with their job on the line. You know, when I heard this, I wondered where it came from. It sounded familiar to me, this you-are-me bullshit. I'm sure it shows up in all sorts of pseudotherapies, but where I'm familiar with it is from the insane book that directed the second cult that I was in. The book is called A Course in Miracles, and I've written just tons on this fuckshit book, and I'll link to all of that for you. Now, I don't know whether Brower was actively reading that book or just under the influence of The big Course in Miracles promoter, Gabby Bernstein, whose huge digital spiritual junkie program, Brower, is an affiliate for. But A Course in Miracles as a networking tool is built on the principle of people teaching each other, but in this really narcissistic way. People teaching other people as a means of achieving understanding for themselves. Now, to give a taste of how this is all reasoned out, I'm going to go right to the source here and read the opening of the section called "A Manual for Teachers." This is in a Course in Miracles. It says, quote, "The role of teaching and learning is actually reversed in the thinking of the world. The reversal is characteristic." It seems as if the teacher and the learner are separated, the teacher giving something to the learner rather than to himself. Further, the act of teaching is regarded as a special activity in which one engages only a relatively small proportion of one's time. The course, on the other hand, emphasizes that to teach is to learn, so that teacher and learner are the same. It also emphasizes that teaching is a constant process. It goes on every moment of the day and continues into sleeping thoughts as well. To teach is to demonstrate. There are only two thought systems, and you demonstrate that you believe one or the other is true all the time. From your demonstration, others learn, and so do you. The question is not whether you will teach, for in that there is no choice, The purpose of the course might be said to provide you with a means of choosing what you want to teach on the basis of what you want to learn. You cannot give to someone else, but only to yourself. And this you learn through teaching. Teaching is but a call to witnesses to attest to what you believe. It is a method of conversion. This is not done by words alone. Any situation must be to you a chance to teach others what you are and what they are to you. Okay, so hopefully the mind-bending, boundary-free, intrusive creep factor is clear from all of this. Uh, And special note here, the channeler of A Course in Miracles was a New York City psychologist named Helen Shookman. So this is a person who would have been clearly educated in how fucked up this dynamic is from a therapeutic point of view. Part of what her channeled book does is to explicitly reject the previous 60 to 80 years of therapeutic practice and research. And that, dear listeners, is why it is so popular in the New Age crowd. It ditches the basic principles, but also the rigor and the discipline of boundary therapy. And it comes from a therapist It's like the authority of the homeopathy influencer who used to be a doctor before they freaked out. And then with his whole idea of teaching other people as a form of therapy, it gives license for any egomaniac to insinuate themselves into the lives of others under the guise of spiritual advancement. You don't have to go to school. You just have to believe in yourself and your own truthy truth. But that's enough for that rabbit hole. I asked Natalia a follow-up by email about this you-are-me language and whether it rang a Handel bell for her. Absolutely, she wrote back in all caps. Quote, My sense of how the Handel group crowd establish authority since they hold no recognized form of expertise is by drawing on their own quote authentic journey unquote with the idea being they're just a few steps ahead of you enough to give them license to bully you and act superior but close enough you could imagine being just like them one day too if you do the work and sign up for their training programs and one thing i thought was so weird about this world is that the end goal so often morphs into training to be a coach yourself as opposed to just getting to a better place in whatever realm it was that brought you there in the first place. Apologies for the digression. Back to the call. Brower has just declared that the employee is going to start a regular meditation practice. No fucking around, as she says. And actually, this was a good place to pause for a moment because the employee at this point actually manages to interrupt and say, "'I have a regular meditation practice.'" But Brower seems not to hear them, so she plows on. You're gonna hear some beeps in the following, which indicates where I have clipped out identifying information.
8: I'm gonna stay on top of you. You're allowed to text me every day when it's done. It is not easy to move, parents. It is probably one of the hardest things ever. I never, ever, ever want you as a mother to ever say again that it's too hard for you to be elegant no matter where you are, no matter what is happening. I will not allow it. You are a beautiful woman. You are a skillful teacher. You are an ed- over-educated by far for what you're doing. And at no point did anything shake you to the point where you're obnoxious to somebody else. Never. Same, I'm saying this to myself. I have I will never once again do anything less than elegant to my child without apologizing Immediately. And fixing it. Immediately. I'm staying with you. No matter what happens here. Maybe you stay, maybe you don't. Doesn't matter. I'm staying with you. You've got me. I'm going to coach you. You are going to be proud of yourself. Every single night before you go to bed, you're going to remember every word that came out of your mouth. You're going to know every single sentiment that passed through your mind. There is not one moment that you are going to be having confusion or it's too much for you. I know you hate me right now, but you're going to love me in six
2: months. Now, the other intervention that Brower attempts in this very confusing call that the employee didn't sign up for, that was supposed to be about a labor conflict, seems to come straight out of the Handel method homework regarding family material. Again, out of nowhere, Brower prods. Let
8: me ask you this: Are you more like your mom or your dad? In the in the sort of wall, construction, tunnel vision when you're having a hard day.
2: The employee declines to answer. You might recall that they're in the middle of huge family stress, which Brower seems to forget. But this sets up another sermon. Now, I've blanked about two seconds from the following where Brower mentions a name that would break anonymity.
8: I invite you to explore the possibility that you have me to saints offer, and I am glad to give you any number of prompts and help uh, to help you get through this. But please know that you didn't make this stuff up that you have a tendency to do, that you're being called out for. It was modeled for you. And there's nobody to blame. There's only you evolving it you healing all the generations that have come before you, you healing your children going forward into the future, that none of them should ever have a temper, that none of them should ever act in a way that would be this strong like none of them should ever act that way. And I'm inviting you to the possibility that you have me to hold your hand for free and I am expensive to get you out of this when you're ready. You don't have to be ready today. Do you feel like you've been heard here?
2: Wow. What a question. So there is one more funny, not funny moment that shows how if you're following a coaching script, you can make an utter fool of yourself and perhaps not realize it. Close to the end of the call, Brower offers coaching meetings going forward while talking over the employee when they try to say something like, I do see a therapist, but thank you anyway. Now, I can't say whether this exchange is representative of Handel Method Coaching, or whether Brower has gone rogue here, but what I take away from this harrowing call is that it is possible, through whatever Brower has made of her coaching education, to... Use the pretense of mediating a business meeting to offer life coaching, which seems like really sneaky marketing given the offer of further sessions. Uh, Instantly presume an an unearned intimacy. Ask intrusive and provocative questions about the primary relationships of a person one has never met. And make predictions in a first meeting about how successful the six-month program will be. Lastly, for this chapter, I want to recall Brower's statement on the call that I'm going to stay on top of you and you're allowed to text me every day when it's done. She's referring to the regular daily meditation practice that the employee must start, which the employee already does, but that got ignored. Part of the overbearing assumption here is that the employee will become a coaching client. But let's just zero in on the fact that Brouwer is inviting a stranger to text her every day. Now above, I've referred to reviewing texts between Brouwer and Tatum-Fuersted. The PDF of that full history, which dates from January of 2014, which was during the training, and tapers off in the summer of 2016, is 113 pages long. It's hundreds of exchanges over a wide range of topics. It's immersive. And on one hand, Brouwer seems endlessly available to Tatum. And on the other, the power differential is clear. Brouwer is quick to preach, scold, and even give health advice when Tatum has a fever, dissuading her from taking ibuprofen and recommending, of course, essential oils. But perhaps the most significant portion of the history shows Brouwer instructing Tatum on how to run the social media content for Brouwer's various projects, mainly Vera Yoga. None of this was contracted work. Related to the you-are-me feeling I've discussed, at certain points in the text history, it does seem like they are chatting away as friends and equals, There are greetings, emojis, terms of endearment, praise going back and forth. The power differential is clear insofar as Tatum is often asking for and accepting advice, and of course doing all of this work, but the curdled aspect of the you-are-me thing leaks through. The sheer bulk of the text history shows one person needing guidance and support, and another accepting this dependency and perhaps feeling like a friend. Chapter four, enthrallment is not money. Liz Fullen started practicing with Brower in 2010, not in person, but virtually. Brower has been a featured teacher on the Yoga Globe platform for more than a decade. And back then, Liz said that her online experience allowed her to, quote, have all these ideas about her before even meeting her, unquote. Liz finally got to meet her icon at the Wanderlust Festival in Stratton Mountain, Vermont in June of 2013. She went to the event with her copy of Art of Attention in her bag, and she lined up after class to have it signed by Brower. And Brower saw that Liz's copy was one of the special hand-numbered lot at the beginning of the print run.
7: When she opened the book... She, she got, she was so taken aback. She couldn't believe she said, I even forget what the numbers that were now, but whatever number it was, it was like something very special to her. And she couldn't believe I was in front of her and all of this stuff that was making me feel very seen. Um, and then I had said, you know, I wanted to sign up for your teacher training, but I found out about it too late. And she said, just come, you need to be there. This meeting is just too serendipitous. You, you must come. So I was over the moon. You know, Elena Brower wanted me and her teacher
2: training. It's worth saying something about Brower's book here, The Art of Attention. As I mentioned, it was published in 2012. Because in it, I think that we see that triple threat in full swing. It's a splashy photo and poetry-soaked rendition of five of Brower's signature Yoga Glow online classes. So there's good tie-in marketing there. The photographers are top notch, and the chapter forewords are written by such luminaries as Gwyneth Paltrow and Gabby Bernstein, who is the aforementioned younger Marianne Williamson type whose brain has also been melted by A Course in Miracles. It's co written with a graphic designer named Erica Jago, and Jago has serious chops. Her website lists this great layout work on a big Oprah coffee table book. She's also a yoga teacher, although I'm sad to say it's in the morally and intellectually bankrupt Kundalini brand. Brower is also from the design world. According to her LinkedIn profile, she graduated Cornell in 1992 with a bachelor's of science in textiles and apparel and worked as a designer for several years after. And this shows through every meticulously beautiful piece of content she puts out. Now, she's not alone in this yoga design A-list pantheon. The late Katie Griggs, the now deceased cult leader at Rama Institute, was also a fashion mogul. And Brower's New York City homies, David Life and Sharon Gannon of Jiva Mukti Yoga fame, had definite catwalk styles. But Brower is really the best at it, to my eye. I want to say she's like the Martha Stewart of yoga design, but I think that's just too staid, too square. Maybe Nigella Lawson, but only with green juices? I don't know. The point is that Brouwer's yoga material seems like a delivery device for a total lifestyle, an aesthetic that just permeates everything, or I guess we could say like essential oil, it diffuses. So Liz's starstruck wanderlust meeting with Brower was in June, and then she describes a whirlwind of activity to get everything together to make it to New York for the training in September. But then when she walked into Vera Yoga, she says that Brower didn't seem to have a clue who she was. After the training, Liz signed up for six weeks of Handel coaching calls, and she eventually agreed to sell doTERRA, but was never any good at it. She became an assistant in classes, giving adjustments. And Liz considered that Brower was showing her a kind of favor that would get her work in other studios. So she appreciated this. It was good for networking. But Elena never paid her through a formal contract, and Liz never asked to be paid. This went on for three years and included things like being invited to assist at a yoga retreat in Istanbul. I mean, this was a place that Liz and her partner at the time wanted to go to anyway, and so she agreed, but she spent the entire trip working while her partner took in the sights, and Liz received no compensation. Over time, Liz told me, she came to feel sour about what felt like an exploitative relationship. She described having a bad taste in her mouth about the time she had given up, about the unfairness of it. And then in 2017, it came to a head.
7: I had gotten pregnant. We had decided to not keep the baby. I took the abortion pill. And during that, it takes days for that to like actually run through your system. And during that, this person decided that my partner at the time decided to move out of my house so our house together without like I was at work one day and I came back so it was a very traumatic kind of abandonment thing talk about being triggered and abandoned um and I walked into the house and I sat down and I started crying and even though I had had that bad taste in my mouth and I was starting to realize like this is you need to get out of this she was still one of my first calls She was still the person I looked to to tell me what to do. I didn't have anybody else to tell me what to do at that moment. And in that moment, I needed somebody to tell me what to do because I felt like I was dying. I felt like everything was crumbling around me, that I was absolutely nothing, that like I was never bouncing back from this. In that moment in my mind, I was done. Liz Fullen was just done for. And so I called Elena. She, at first, it was all this stuff about, oh, well, he just... He wasn't, he's not your king, don't worry about it. He's not your king. We talked a lot about like finding your king. It's not your king. Your king will come. Like this is just a lesson. A lot of stuff was said. I was I was very I, I was very ungrounded at the time when I was speaking with her. The conversation ended with her figuring out a way to tell me that if I'm going to keep this apartment that I was planning on sharing the rent with this person, you know, I'm going to keep this apartment. It's really time for me to take my business seriously.
2: How long was the phone call? Like how long did it take to get from your tears? And I imagine explaining the bare bones of what had happened to the sales pitch.
7: Probably five minutes.
2: Chapter five, sorry, not sorry. So there are several options for the influencer who gets criticized for their behavior and doesn't do that rare thing of saying, wow, you've really shown me something I have to work on. I'm going to shut up for a while and reconsider things. The options are, I think, in ascending order of complexity and lucrativeness. These are kind of like MLM rankings. Uh, Number one is the plain old wellness advocate who just ignores it. Number two, maybe gold level, uh, acknowledge but deflect and minimize. Uh, Number three is presidential level, which is acknowledge, minimize, Offer a generalized apology that makes a virtue of humility, but doesn't actually address the content. But then fold the whole episode into your enlightened brand as an example of your integrity and authenticity. And then number four is like double diamond, Queen Victoria's crown stolen from India level. Uh, Have a responding elegantly to cancellation workshop ready for online booking within a week. The day after Tatum posted her open letter, Brower took to Instagram with two posts that hit that number three presidential zone. The first one was a may I slash you be at ease handwritten card with this caption. Yesterday, I got word that there was negativity being tossed around about me in the ethers, which happens a few times a year. Projections are real. So I took the day to quietly do my errands, chauffeur my kid, clean my home, cook, and reflect. The folks sharing the negativity aren't new. They come around every few months to sling barbs, so I'm used to it. Their complaints are mostly that I sold out. I started working for other companies and doing things other than yoga so I could make money to raise my child. I can understand that might be disturbing or scary. It was for me at the beginning... But eventually, I learned that selling stellar products that help people thrive can be a big, proud part of my work. I love my extended family of colleagues across the globe, and I'm grateful for the growth we experience together. When I set out to teach yoga, it was about creating freedom in body and mind. It was about giving folks what I'd been given a feeling of empowerment, of tenderness, of fascination with humanity. I offer practices to reorient us to what matters, to our dignity, our integrity, and our willingness to remember how human we are when we falter, to give ourselves grace when we make mistakes. So to the folks who choose to share negativity, Hi again. I'll always be here if you'd like to talk. I'm sorry if I've hurt you. I wish I could say directly to your face how sorry I am for any pain I've caused. Please know that any pain I've caused was never intended. I own it and apologize. I've always tried my best to offer the tools and practices that were effective for me, but those tools and ways aren't for everyone. And I'm not for everyone. And at almost 51, I'm okay with that. And to the folks who choose to add to the banter with more negativity, may you be happy. May you be well. May you be safe. May you live with ease. Now, Brower says the focus of the generalized negativity she gets is related to her MLM sales. She writes, Their complaints are mostly that I sold out, I started working for other companies and doing things other than yoga so I could make money to raise my child. Well, firstly, that's not what Tatum's letter is about at all. But even if it was, this is probably Brouwer's weakest possible defense, because it sounds like it's written directly by the doTERRA PR department. Of all of the behaviors reported here, the one that is most objectively questionable is being boss lady at the top of an MLM downline because the research and numbers don't lie. MLMs are predatory scams, and anyone who says otherwise is probably highly motivated. So in response to Tatum's letter, which basically says, you emotionally and financially exploited a younger woman for the benefit of your brand, Brouwer hauls out a defense of predatory capitalism. Later that same day, Brower posts an IG Live that is just over 30 minutes long, and there's two parts to it, and it's really interesting. The two parts are basically paraphrased. Number one, here I am supporting women yoga authors, and here are some nice quotes from their new books. And number two, Tatum, you should have come to me in private. I would never try to ruin anyone like this. And... What I saw in your letter was the same wounded little girl I knew years ago, and nothing has changed. Again, I'm paraphrasing. With part one, Brower establishes women's empowerment credibility, but with part two, she dismisses a woman who is a former student with grievances. Now, Brower's first choice for book promotion in this Instagram Live is super interesting and shows just how intricate and historically charged this landscape can be. She's reading from a new book by Judith Lassiter, who she calls one of her dearest teachers. Lassiter is a matriarch of the American yoga world and also one of BKS Iyengar's most successful students. Do you remember him from chapter one? there's a kind of yoga halo around Lassiter. She's traditional, but also facing forward. She spoke out against Manuso Manos in the 1990s when his sexual abuse came to light, but then she never really criticized Iyengar for giving him his job back. And she never openly acknowledged that Iyengar himself was a physical abuser. But it's also Yoga World Gospel that she took the best of what Iyengar had to offer and softened it for the women's wellness market. She's the main innovator of restorative yoga, if you've heard of that. So she has maintained a strong connection to Iyengar, as did John Friend, but she has also built her brand on progressing beyond the old school while never really criticizing it. So if there was a better senior female yoga influencer for Brower to tie her star to in a moment of crisis, I don't know who it would be. And then get this. Brower introduces the book by announcing that she'll be co-leading an upcoming retreat with Lassiter on nonviolent communication, which Lassiter has actually written a book in. Here's the passage from Lassiter's book that Brouwer reads,
9: our students belong to themselves. Every teacher will have students who come once, never again, let go of them. Every teacher will have students who come for decades and then suddenly have the urge to leave your classes and study with another teacher, perhaps even study a completely different style than you teach, let go of them. Remember, we are the bucket and not the water. Gracefully send them on on their way with love. That is the healthiest and most evolved response. Notice a ripple, if it comes, of disappointment or jealousy. Note any thoughts that tell you in some way their departure is your failing. These students have gotten what they need from you and may be off to become teachers themselves and thus your colleague, or they may simply disappear without a trace.
2: I really got to hand it to Brower here because what a smashing quote to use at the front end of addressing a call-out. It sounds super poetic, but also super avoidant, and it shows how deftly the quasi-Buddhist language of non-attachment can be mobilized during an accountability challenge. Everything is impermanent. If we could only understand this, how would any of us hold grievances? Isn't that the true teaching? So Brower goes on to promo several other books, all by women, and for me the other standout is Embrace Yoga's Roots by Susanna Barkataki. Now, full disclosure, I haven't met Susanna in person, but we know each other from some remote work that we've shared, and I appreciate how she addresses issues of decolonization in yoga. Her content is accessible, it's forward-thinking, but in a world in which there are a lot of white charismatics trying to figure out how to brand wash, I'm afraid her work is also vulnerable to co-optation. Here's Brower.
9: I will actually be uh, doing a, an event with her in late October. I think it's the 26th. I want to say I'm helping on her book tour. One of the most important books of this year. Here we sort of take ownership of our role in diluting the practices we honor the source of the practices i'm thinking about yoga gives back right now i'm also thinking about give back yoga right now to organizations with which i'm affiliated um i find it's a very important thing to be very direct and honest with myself. And I'll address uh, sort of the current events toward the end of this live. I wanna really focus on the teachers and their, and their work here. Um, where, and one of her reflection questions, I'm on page 119, once again, embrace yoga's roots. Where in your life and practice are you more of a bystander? Where are you more of an ally? And where are you more of an accomplice? It's an interesting question to ask as a yoga teacher because there's uh, no shortage of temptation to just perform and, and pretend. Um, but, but how do we put our money where our mouths are? How do we put our practices where our mouths are? How do we make sure that we're actually truly honoring the medicine that yoga is in our lives?
2: What stands out here is that Barkataki's language of bystander, ally, and accomplice specifically refers to what people are prone to do according to their privilege when there's an injustice to be addressed. This live stream is ostensibly Brower's response to the open letter, and she is elevating the language of restorative justice from the work of a BIPOC writer in a way that I believe distracts from her precise situation. It's dizzying. So I sent Susanna two questions by email. I wrote, Your formulation of bystander-ally-accomplice is rooted in decolonization discourse and a critique of capitalism. Given that Brower probably makes a million-plus per year as a rep for an exploitative MLM, do you feel she's understanding your book? Or is she co-opting? Or is she tokenizing? And then the second question was, she mentions that she'll be supporting a book event with you on October 26th. Is that something you'll be going through with, given the circumstances? Susanna wrote back, quote, I absolutely will not be doing the book event with Elena Brower. I read Tatum Fierstead's open letter and was upset by what I learned. I also did not know that information about Elena and the MLM. Thank you for linking it. Wow. Judith Lasseter did not respond to my request for comment. So that Instagram Live closes out with Brower addressing, quote, the elephant in the room to the people who accuse me of all sorts of fascinating things, projections, even abuses. I'll just bullet point what Brower says. She says she was always open for feedback and resolution and that Tatum should have come to her directly. She claims that she hasn't read the letter because she is blocked, but then the letter is on medium. But then she later comments negatively on how the letter was written, and that she's not surprised, given who it came from. She says that given all the points the letter made, quote, "...I cannot consciously say that anything is different now. What I saw then in the sadness and in the questions was someone I desperately wanted to help." tried with every bone in my body and couldn't. Anytime I really reached out to help, anytime I did what someone else did for me to help me get sober or get clear, I was met with resistance. And now I'm being called an abuser.
3: I guess, three things that allowed me to come forward. And the first was knowing that publishing this wouldn't change Elena's behavior, but would provide solidarity for people who have experienced similar harm at the hands of Elena or even people like her. And that's a solidarity that I know that I've craved for the last five years. So I imagine that other folks were also looking for that sort of connection. And I wanted to open the door to that.
2: That's Tatum Fearstead. I'll close out this report with some reflections from her.
3: Um, secondly, I've been learning a lot um, about how white cisgender women are the gatekeepers of the patriarchy and how we protect it to serve our own best interests, and I really want to stop doing that. And after trying multiple times to say something to Elena privately, I felt like By not saying anything publicly, I was continuing to protect and enable another harm causing white woman. And I didn't I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, And finally, I've needed a lot of therapy to get to this place. Telling the truth with clear boundaries and a clear goal, as I stated in the letter, was not something I could do before I understood why I was attracted to someone like her. Why did I stay in that relationship as long as I did? And why even years later, when her name gets mentioned, why do I have this visceral negative response? And thanks to my licensed therapists, I have a lot of clarity and self-compassion and tenderness towards the woman I was and how I ended up in that situation. And I'm, I feel like I'm able to clearly articulate that um, in the letter. And I'm proud of what I did.
2: I wanted to circle back to Tatum's second reason for publishing her letter. She talked about how white women were gatekeepers of the patriarchy. And I wanted to know, with the yoga industry now led and consumed by 80% women and with coaching outfits like Handel that are founded and primarily led by women, how did she understand patriarchy as being a driving force? She explained that it wasn't about gender but domination, about hierarchies of power and leaders not being accountable or interested in sharing power. And that when women engage in these old dynamics, it's just more of the same. And she said that this was something familiar to her from the past.
3: I learned firsthand that it's a lot like the fundamentalist Baptist church I went to as a child. The the framework of the MLM, the life coaching, sort of shame based leadership that exists within those it's it's this it's the same, and that's why I was drawn to it. I mean, I thought I was doing something else when I first found these things because it was yoga, because it was um, all masked with this like we are all one stuff that needs to be talked about more, and I I had this sense of you're either fully in or in Elena's case in Elena's case you're pretending that you are and lying about it for the benefits of her posting about your work or you're an outcast it feels like middle school In order to be a part of the cool girl group, I have to betray myself, my intuition. I have to give up my lunch money and pretend that things like science, confirmation bias, and late stage capitalism aren't real.
2: At the top of the episode, I offered the opinion that the main subject here really wasn't Elena Brower or crappy pseudo-business relationships. Brower didn't create the charisma-based yoga industry that she excelled in. She didn't dream up Handel coaching or distilled doTERRA oils. She doesn't make the little bottles or the labels. And she may not to this day see anything wrong with these economies, especially if she feels her intentions are good. Brower applied her considerable aesthetic and performative skills to what she found, and she made it all look better, feel better, and sell bigger. And who wouldn't want to do that with their skills? And really, in a boundaryless, sleepless world of quickly fragmenting relationships, a decline in institutional credibility, and an explosion of seemingly endless alternative possibilities, is it that surprising that a confident person would come to believe that they had special insights into psychology and spirituality? Or that they could solve a stranger's problems in six months or even a Zoom call? And worse, what if they were roped into monetizing that confidence? And what would happen if no one ever said, hey, slow down, until they got an open letter? What would happen, I think, is what happens all the time. They would coast, they would surf, they would assess the social and financial rewards coming their way as signs of grace. In that terrible Zoom call, Brower says a very wise thing, although for dodgy reasons. Please know that you didn't make this up, Brower says. It was modeled for you. There's nobody to blame. There's only you evolving it. You heal all the generations that have come before you. You heal your children going forward into the future. That sounds good. The question is how? Just as this story is about more than Brower, from Tatum Feersted's point of view, it's also about more than her. So I'll let her have the last word on that for this chapter. And we'll also link to some of Tatum's favorite resources in the show notes.
3: I'm white. I'm able-bodied. I'm a cisgender woman. I have thin and pretty privilege. I have access to mental health support. And I think that's part of the reason this letter made waves. I know I'm not the first person to talk about this stuff. But, you know, it's like the Gabby Petito stuff where it's this very beautiful blonde white girl. This terrible thing happened to her. But there's so many other black and brown people who have who have gone missing that no one's talking about. And I know that people from the BIPOC, fat, trans, and disabled communities have been asking this white-led industry to do better for a long time. And we just keep ignoring them. And that's really problematic. And as much as this interview feels like talking about what I experienced, I want to de-center myself in this conversation and make sure that we're elevating the voices that have actually been talking about this stuff for a while that that we don't listen to so
2: So I'd really like to thank Tatum Fiersted and Liz Fullen and Dr. Natalia Petrozella for their interviews, and also uh, to all of the sources who talked to me for this reporting. Derek, Julian, thoughts? What did you come away with?
1: Well, it's it's a huge topic, and and I want to just say good work, Matthew. You know, for this week, I've been learning more about MLMs, and I've shared a little bit about that on social media and the intersection with wellness. um, When you've got this intersection between charismatic influence via yoga and then amplified by social media outreach in these times then colliding with the abundance script of boss babe coaching culture that links self-worth and empowerment to entrepreneurial wealth. And that's all via the aspirational pseudoscience of these snake oil lifestyle products presented within the exploitive structure of multi-level marketing, where every customer becomes a sales drone who's told to believe they can become the queen by in turn making new drones out of friends and family, usually. It's Uh so complicated, but this is... It's also kind of seamless in terms of the the themes that we track on this podcast. So in terms of those dynamics, I also want to flag here, and I'll talk about this more on social media this week as well, that this style of influence, along with the alternative health and wellness claims that characterize a lot of MLM culture seems to make those sucked into these networks especially vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Uh, the almost magical yet entirely unevidenced alt-health claims made about their products are often held as religious truths by those with everything at stake, who already identify as marginalized outsiders with some kind of special knowledge, right? And so we know, and we've, we've covered this somewhat on the pod, toward the end of 2020, Our friend Ben Lee wrote an open letter urging doTERRA CEO Dave Sterling to take a public position condemning doTERRA wellness advocates who were using their platforms to promote QAnon. And the company seemed to initially respond well, but that statement has since disappeared to be replaced with a very wishy washy walkback that apologized for offending any of the members who might have felt shamed. And you know, we've observed and several people have messaged us to this effect that since then, several high profile doTERRA reps, some of whom are at the like $1 million to $3 million a year presidential diamond earning level, have continued right. to weave appeals to natural immunity, claims about which oils will give protection against viruses, and of course, anti-vaccine messaging into their otherwise very slick invitations to join the spiritual and financial elite by, of course, signing up onto their Already massive downlines.
0: When I was producing this episode, because obviously, listeners, you know, you, you, we've pre recorded much of it, um, I couldn't help but think of the red flag meme that has been going around Twitter. Uh, I included one on our Instagram page, but basically, it's just saying things that should be red flags. And MLMs are just red flags. Always, like they always have been. I remember my massage therapist back in New York, uh, who was a good friend. But you, you know, she she was a young, living oil rep, and at one point said, "You know, I think you do really well." And I didn't know enough about him back then, but I was like, "She's like, I think you could sell these. You you know, you have that personality." And I'm like, "No, I don't. <laughs> I see you." I was like, "There's no, <laughs> you're I'm like not me." Gonna, <laughs> And, and to her credit, that was it. She never brought it up again, but it was just kind of like a little little touch to see. And and I, any sort of structure, pyramid scheme like this, the fact that it's not super apparent that you have to buy the product to sell the product, I, I wish there were more guardrails. I mean, I know we have serious problems with the way that the uh, FDA operates and what can be treated as a drug and what can be a supplement, you know, a dietary aid. And that spills over into this world because there are so many health claims that are made with these oils that are just bullshit. And I have nothing against oils. They smell good. If you put them in a diffuser, that's awesome. It's nice to create an ambiance. I buy them on occasion, but to think that it would, to go to the extremes, helped to cure cancer or some of the other ridiculous claims that I've heard is is not fair to the people that you're exploiting on your on your downline and crossing over into that is also this phenomenon we've touched a little bit upon on this podcast which is the fact that you can call yourself a coach and start a business you don't need any certifications whatsoever to do that and i know licensed psychotherapists that really have a problem with this because there's no training whatsoever. And like anything else, it's a hustle. But the top performers make vastly more money than an actual licensed psychotherapist, psychoanalyst will make. And they have ne- They don't necessarily have any experience with actually helping people. And a- as you heard in this episode, it-, it can be very dangerous to people. That moment when th- there was the well, you're going to meditate the right way now. Um, no fucking around. But the, Yeah, that that is so... If anyone ever said that to me, I, I would have hung up at that moment. And it's just really, really... It, it was so troublesome hearing so much of this episode, but I'm really glad you tackled it. And so thank you for that.
2: Yeah, well, thanks, Derek. I mean, I wanted to say about that particular moment that listening through that call... I think there are a number of points in which many listeners would say, oh, that would be it for me, or I would, I would hang up. But I actually think that there's a type of coaching that relies upon uh, generating a kind of freeze response, um, because it's not about dialogue at all actually it's about confrontation and it's about shock and awe <laughs> and um there's just this clear sort of dominance structure to it that the person on the receiving end you know is is it, it, you know can can really be paralyzed and so yeah, I think there's something about the method itself that, that is like, it's not going to let you hang up. That's part of the, that's part of the hook.
0: Let me be fair with that statement. I want to clarify because I can say that in hindsight, uh, you know, not being involved, but if I was in the moment, who knows what I would have done. Yeah. So I want, I want to be fair because I have been in power dynamics like that before where I have been more open to manipulation and in that sort of environment. Uh, I think. Maybe now I'd do a little better with it, but you can never tell until you're in the moment. And I, I'm just glad that that person was able to record and had the foresight to do that.
1: Yeah, I want to just say too, along the lines of what you were saying, Derek, that you know the lack of the lack of training as opposed to uh, a psychotherapist. Um, actually, they've had lots and lots of training, and I know there are, there are plenty of coaches operating in good faith who are, who are nice person, nice people, and and try to be ethical, but. A lot of the coaching programs that I've looked over and that I've heard about, uh, there's plenty of training in how to sell and how to enroll people and how to do almost like that cold reading, this kind of form of psychological cold reading, where you you almost have scripted responses to objections and to attempts to uh, to take the process elsewhere or to say actually no, what you're this is not what I want, right? Well,
0: that's a va- yeah, val- very valid point there because I do know that. Some coaches have taken training. I was just trying to make the point that you don't actually have to. You can just start a coaching service and go and try to sell yourself without anything. Now, having those certificates adds some. Shine to it, some authenticity that you can then show to clients, saying you've done it. But it's not actually a requirement.
1: I mean, my my tendency here in closing is is always going to be to come back around to the underlying philosophical positions that manifest this reality, so to speak. I mean, <laughs> I feel like the the yoga and wellness space over time has more and more become characterized by these soundbite shortcuts, you know, that are based more on exploiting people's needs and fears than any actual contemplative inquiry that holds our humanity with a kind of compassion and respect for the the difficulty of you know what really goes on in many people's inner worlds uh, and this dovetails perfectly with the persuasive sales psychology that has evolved along with the internet into ever more virulent strains, uh, the sound bites will say things like, you create your own reality, instead of something more complex, like we're each shaped within a context of genetic, familial, social, and political factors, or stop acting like a victim and you'll be empowered and abundant, just like that, right? Instead of a more compassionate recognition that actually victimization is very real, and it affects us in ways that are difficult and unglamorous to disentangle. Oh, for sure, yeah. Right? And that real inner work Doesn't actually have a direct causal relationship to financial status, right? (laughs) That you're, you're gonna be wealthy and empowered and beautiful if you, uh, if you like, you know, do this very quick, superficial technique that supposedly clears your energy blocks, right? So because there's a way of using these aspirational promises to keep enrolling people deeper into a sales funnel by always identifying the sense of lack or anxiety in the customer instead of the product, the next step in finally becoming whole and getting everything you want within an alluring community with an all-knowing leader at the top of it is it's always just a frictionless click away via very well-crafted branding. And in the end, it's not actually that complicated because if the premise is that the, the power to overcome all of your life's difficulties is already within you, then you're always to blame for the course, the training, the entrepreneurial grift not delivering. But hey, not to worry because this next opportunity I have to sell you is going to change.
2: Everything. It's actually incredibly smart. It's like a completely self sealing system.
1: Yeah. So I think in terms of some kind of moral to the story, uh, it's it's just that these oversimplified sound bites that do the work of blurring all of these categories that we've been talking about within the presentation of a totalizing lifestyle transformation. That's the answer to all your problems. That's the enormous red flag, and it would be you know my wish, my hope that somehow. Uh, people entering the wellness space would be educated to recognize that red flag right away. But it's an uphill battle because in a lot of ways, the industry is built on and made lucrative by precisely these manipulative tactics.
2: Well, I want to thank you both for um, bringing a broad lens to the end here uh- because, as I've said a number of times during the reporting, you know, this is much bigger than the characters involved. Uh, but there is one specific thing that I think we can say about behaviors, not about the personal behavior of Elena Brower, uh, which we'll never really know the truth about, Um yeah, and so imagining who she might become in the world or how she might act differently, uh, if that's what she should do, or if that's what she can do, it's all very vague and idealistic. But I do think the one thing that a person in her position can do if she wants to make the world a better place is to stop being an upline overlord for an MLM, um, this is not something that requires therapy. <laughs> uh, you don't have to like figure out where everything went wrong. You don't have to make amends. In fact, uh, you know, Tatum Fiersted in her letter is really clear about what she doesn't need, which is she doesn't need an apology or any kind of sort of closure. She wants to describe an experience and make people aware of its possibility. Um, yeah. So, so to, to turn away from the, the a toxic business structure is not psychologically complex. It's not interpersonally taxing. You might lose some money. Uh, but compared, I think with the, the soul searching that, uh, might really be in store, I think that's a low cost and it's undeniably the right thing to do. Um, in my research, I found the doTERRA policy manual uh, and um, I read through it and I found a section called transfer of distributorship position because I was wondering, like, well, what's the exit plan here? Like, how do people get out of this? What happens when they die? Um, and there's a, yeah, so there's a section 21B that uh, talks about how the position within the organization can be sold, it can be gifted, it can bequeathed to, Uh, anyone else with the written permission of the company. Now, the transferee would secure that position and all of its income. And I was just thinking about All of the people who could use the passive income of the double presidential diamond position to actually fund and stabilize an in real life social justice project. Uh, And then, you know, once that had played out, once that was stable, that project was done, they could slowly let their position in the company wither on the vine. And then the other thing about this is that I was told by that former gold level seller, uh, the, the... the actual structure is really a house of cards, because if somebody in a high position pulls out, the upline is disrupted, the downline is orphaned, because the whole thing is a confidence game. So if key middlemen walk away, things begin to teeter. Uh, if you let your account go inactive, the passive income keeps flowing for a while but the house of cards above you will collapse. So anyway, what I'm what I'm proposing doesn't take confession or therapy. It's really just about taking a clear look at the tons of research out there and reporting out there on the toxicity of the mlm model and you can look to all of the links we've provided in the show notes Uh, it just takes looking at a little bit of that at this obvious wasteland of capitalism spreading out behind you and then just starting to walk in another direction